Hey everyone, welcome to the Pursue God podcast. I'm Pastor Brian, joined by Pastor Ross, Pastor Eric. Guys, today we're in week two of our prodigal series. And so today we talk about the prodigal father, the, this, the father in the story that we started telling last week. And I think it's good for us maybe to start uh, with what we ended with last time, the definition, the dictionary definition of prodigal. Prodigal is an adjective, and here's here's how the dictionary reads. It's spending money or resources freely and recklessly. It's being wastefully extravagant. In fact, we encourage people to listen all the way to the end because we're going to talk about a song, a popular worship song that's out there that that really kind of references this, and we're going to talk about whether it's biblical. But, so, but remember, let's remember this, the prodigal son story, Jesus told this parable to to clear up the rule keeper's misunderstanding about God's character. So why don't we start by going back and bringing some more context. You know, last time we we talked a little bit about uh, the prodigal son. We started to read the story of the prodigal son from Luke chapter 15. But let's go back to verses 1 and 2 uh, so that we can bring some context to this whole thing, because Jesus doesn't just tell this prodigal son parable on its own. He actually tells it after he he gives two other st- shorter stories, shorter parables in Luke chapter 15. So starting in verse 1 and 2, it says this, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. So these notorious sinners were the rule breakers that we talked about last time. And the Bible says that this made the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law, those are the rule keepers, complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. Now, last time we talked about the difference between rule breakers and rule followers. And uh, do you guys want to just remind us where you are on the spectrum? If you tell me to, I will. <laughs> That's right, because you are... <laughs> I am the rule follower. The rule follower. And Eric, you were going to be like, no, I'm not going to tell you. Exactly. Yeah, I don't, I don't even need to answer that question. Because you're a rule breaker. Mm-hmm. And so, again, at home, if you're doing this, if you're talking about this with your family or your small group or your mentor, it's good to put yourself on the spectrum. Maybe rate your spouse. Maybe rate your kids. Mm-hmm. Maybe have your kids rate each other. I think that would be, be a fun little exercise. All right. Here's what we're talking about, though, today. Uh, here's, here's really the first lesson from today, and what we're going to do in, in today's episode is we're going to be bringing in those other two parables that Jesus told to sort of set up the larger parable of the prodigal, of the prodigal son. The first point we're going to get to is that the Father chases down those who are lost. Ross, why don't you read uh, for us that the beginning of that first parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15. Yeah, so uh, Luke 15, starting in verse 3, we see, so he opens by telling us who the uh, people are who were present that day, and then in verse 3, so Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and gets one of them law, and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that's lost until he finds it? And then the second parable is very parallel to the first parable in verse 8. Or, he says, so here's the second one, suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one, won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? So there's the search. 
is going on and, and when you've got like like okay here's the scenario in both of them something gets lost and then what is the person who the owner of that or the caretaker of that what do they do when that something that sheep or a coin gets lost they go for it they go after it yeah so these these parables actually really kind of speak to um things that I've learned about God in my pursuit of him you know as I've been growing as a Christian some of the things that really touched me personally and and made me want to pursue God even more was knowing and understanding that God is this um, good shepherd, this good shepherd who wants to lay down his life for the sheep and take care of the sheep. He's willing to do whatever it takes to keep his sheep with him. You know, it brings me back to John uh, chapter 10, where he says that he is the good shepherd and that um, he is the door by which people enter into the fold and and that uh, his sheep know him and hear his voice. And so that first parable um, where he talks about going and chasing down the sheep, you know, it really gives me this picture that God doesn't want to lose any of the ones whom he's called, who, whom he's chosen, the ones that he knows that are going to um, be his followers, Jesus has come to seek them out and to find them. Jesus himself says, I've came to seek and to save the lost. And so we see that God's heart is for lost people. Uh, here at our, at our church, we have this little slogan, sinners, sinners welcome, because uh, it's the lost in whom Jesus came to save. Mm-hmm. Not that he says it's not the it's not the the well or that need a doctor, but the sick, mm-hmm. right? And so, um, I love this about God, and we're going to find out more more about this as we talk more through these points today. But personally, for me, um, it gave me the confidence to pursue God because I knew He was pursuing me first. Mm-hmm. He wanted me. It wasn't that he was just saying, well, if he's lost, let him let him go. We'll just let him go. Mm-hmm. But he was like, no, I'm going to chase him down. And in my life, you know, he allowed, you know, discipline and certain things in my life to happen so that maybe I would drop to my knees and turn to him, as we, we talked about last week in The Prodigal Son. Russ, how would the Pharisees have heard, I, I guess maybe how, how would they have reacted to this first parable about the sheep? Because... Obviously, they're the 99, right? They're the rule followers. The Pharisees were the, they were really good at the crossing every T and dotting every I in the Jewish law, even though they were missing the point of it. Most of them were. But they, would they have been offended by this? Yeah, they might, they might have. Um, because, well, <clears throat> so you have a mixed group of people listening, and you have the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the law are there, that they're the 99. You also had the tax gatherers and the notorious sinners. Mm. And the, and you can see in verses one and two that they're not popular with the religious people. That they the religious people are criticizing Jesus for spending any time with them. And so that's really the backdrop. Jesus says, "Look, um, the shepherd is going to go spend some time looking for the la- the lost sheep because of the value that they have." So it would be scandalous to the religious people to say, "Wait, wait, God values those people." Mm-hmm so much they don't value him apparently so why does god value them that would, why didn't why would god not value us a lot more than he values them it, well and this idea of value then comes into the second parable it's a simple one but it's this woman who only has 10 coins and so 
each coin is really valuable to her. She loses one of them and she doesn't just say, oh, it's, I'll just cut my losses. It's no big deal. She goes, she goes after she's, she's lighting a lamp. She's sweeping the entire house, which I can relate to, right? If you lose something, yeah. the, the other day we lost Tracy and I watching, watching TV, we lost our remote <laughs> and we went into a complete tailspin, searching, digging for that remote. In fact, what had happened is it it had been it was caught in the couch, and it the volume button got got hit, and the TV was blaring <laughs> as <laughs> the TV is blaring, and we can't turn the TV off, and we're running around looking for the remote. So I can relate to this second parable that Jesus that he talks about something that's so valuable to the woman that she's turning her house upside down looking for it which again is paints a different picture for the teachers of the law than I think what they had been painting and what generations of religious leaders had been painting for the Jewish people, because what were they telling people that God was like before Jesus hit the scene? Yeah, the God, the God well, they, had, they took the idea of God's holiness and the holiness of the law, and they expanded on it to the point that they forgot that God is compassionate. Mm that God is a loving God. And so it became a conditional kind of love, that God only loves those who are measuring up, who are worthy of Him. So, you know, if, if that coin... To them, that lost coin was a penny. Mm. You know, why bother? Like, just... So, so the question is, how, how big of the, of the... How much money is to be on the ground before you bend over and pick it up, mm. right? Will you pick up a quarter? Pick up a dollar bill? Will you pick up a penny? No, penny walk right by. <clears throat> so to them, the outsiders, religious outsiders, were like a penny, walk right by. They have no value. Who cares? Um, we're, we're the ones who are important. Yeah, the other day I, I saw a guy coming out of a store, and he stopped himself as he's walking through the parking lot, and he saw maybe a quarter at the most on the ground, and he bent down and picked it up and put it in his pocket. And I'll be honest, I was embarrassed for him when I saw him do that, I was just a little, like he was a grown man doing, this was so, and to me, this was so insignificant. Why would he risk germs? Why would he risk COVID, whatever? Mm -hmm. And I, you know, he, if I would, if I would have done, maybe possibly I would have done that, but I would have looked around to make sure nobody was looking. He didn't even do that. He was, he didn't have any care in the world. He was like, I'm going to pick up, I'm going to grab that penny or that dime or that quarter, whatever it was. And and so maybe that's how the Pharisees thought, a little bit embarrassed for, for Jesus that he would tell a story like this, or maybe at least a little bit confused. I don't... Wh why would a person do that? That's, that? That is so insignificant. But to, to the woman in the parable, it was very significant, which is the point, is to God, God's perspective is different from our perspective. He values things at a different, at a different rate than we understand. Yeah, that's what is coming out of that story for me is that she values that coin. We might not be able to understand it, but the love and the uh, the the feelings that she has towards the this lost coin is something I think that we, if we dig deep enough, we can all relate to. I just did that with a golf tee yesterday. You know, I got plenty <laughs> of golf tees, but there's these free plastic ones on the ground, and it's like I pick it up, look around, and nobody's judging me, so I grab it. But to me, I love I love golf. And so to pick up 
you know, something like that means a lot to me. It might not mean a lot to my wife or, well, she would probably like that I'm saving money, but it probably <laughs> wouldn't mean a lot to a whole lot of people. But this just really speaks to the idea that uh, God values some of the things that the world devalues, that or even the religious people don't hold in high mm-hmm. esteem. God holds in high esteem. He loves the lost. He loves those who are his, and he's willing to go to great lengths, even uh, to use or use these words, um, you know, do do things that might cause um, some kind of danger towards himself, right? Or you say, you know, germs or whatever. He's willing to get dirty mm. to find yeah. the lost one. Yeah, he would touch the leper. Exactly. He didn't yeah. just he didn't just speak to the leper, speak healing over the leper. He would touch the leper, which was again capturing the heart of God toward every person. Remember the verses one and two that we just read said that the uh, the rule keepers were offended that he would associate with the rule breakers who were attracted to his teaching, but it was more. I think the point is it was more than that he would associate with them. Mm-hmm. It's that he would chase them down. He he would. It's not that he would just put up with them if they hung if they came around his teaching. No, he actually chased them down. He wanted a relationship with them, which again blows blows away the picture of God that many people have. In fact, some people might be listening to this right now, trying to wrap their mind around this kind of God because you grew up with a God. Um, in maybe a church that you went to, or parents, or authority figures in your life, you grew up with a God who who was was disgusted with you, people like you, and and so this story is for you. Let's 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 go now to the prodigal son story. You know, last week we talked about the this this loser son who goes out and and offends his dad and wastes all this money, and now he's coming home with his tail between his legs. And in verse 20, it says that he returned home to his father. And this is the part now that shows us the father's reaction, the father's heart toward a prodigal. It says that while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him coming and filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. So let's unpack the shock value of this part of the, and the story's not over yet, but let's just camp out on this part of the story. How would the Pharisees have heard this? You know, I think the natural impulse for anybody who is, who has that view of God, who is a, maybe a super religious person, whose who's relationship with God is based on their own sense of self-righteousness, I think the natural default would be to think that, oh, in this story, the father would reject the son. And say, man, no, you blew it, man. You blew your chance. Uh, you did. You made your choice. You made your bed. You know. And so, <clears throat> yeah. I, so I, it would hold him at arm's length, maybe, or or maybe even at best case scenario, what the son thought was, oh, he'll bring me back as a servant. Well, maybe that. Maybe the father would do that. But this idea here that he's welcoming his long lost son like he's a war hero, mm-hmm. like he's like. You know the greatest thing since sliced bread. He's saying, "Man, you gotta have you. You gotta come home, and I'm loving you and embracing you, and and all the rest." That that's really out of character for what pe- religious people think about God. Now, there's two two things that jump out. And I know we can't press the details of a parable, but I do think these are significant details. It says that while he was still a long way off, what is the implication there? 
that the father sees him while he's it's not it's not just that he comes to the door when he rings the doorbell he he sees him when he's a long way off what do you think that might be pointing to there well he he's uh he's not indifferent toward the son at all He's eager. And so this is how this parable is like the other two parables. There's an action of going out, you know. Um, he, he sees the son, and it's not like, oh, oh my gosh, here he comes. What am I going to do? Immediately his response is, oh, I'm so glad to see my lost son. He runs. He, he uh, throws caution and, digni- and dignity to the wind mm-hmm. and just runs out to, to embrace him. Yeah, I think it, you know, brings this thought up to me, like, aren't we all a long way off? Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're all a long way off coming to the Father in, in, in respect to our faith, in our pursuit of God, and He's watching, He knows, He sees. Who knows how far away He is, you know? But it kind of points to the, the all-seeing, all-knowing, um, you know, attributes of God that He can see from a far way that that his his children his people his son is is coming back and he's starting to be joyful and he's getting excited and um and then the way that he reacts i don't know if this is where you're going with the second part of it is that he reacts by not waiting for him to get to him but mm-hmm. he runs and closes that gap he mm-hmm. runs and closes that gap which uh shows the love and grace of god but if you think about yeah culturally i've heard this this taught on many a to- many times but culturally for like uh, a religious person a holy man to have to run or to run that was undignified for him to do that mm-hmm. he would have to he would he would be showing people that he was worried concerned i mean he a holy man at, at that time would have people serving him and following alongside him and he for him to run, and he would have to hike up his his robe mm-hmm. at that time, and so um, that would also be an undignified thing for him to do. But he's he's again with this this abandon, this self abandon. He's willing to close the gap between us and him, between the son and himself, to go seek and to save his lost. And to me, when I when I read this story and I think about him seeing the sun from a long way off it what i always have envisioned is that he every day he had been going out to look hmm. every day he would go out to his porch he would go out to his now maybe he didn't I, I don't know ross if this is because because this speaks to god's boundaries that he doesn't force us to pursue him um that he wasn't grabbing him out of the pig out of the pigsty, right? But that he was at least going to his porch every day, watching, hopefully, waiting for his son. Who knows how long? Waiting for his Since the day his son left and took the money and left and then squandered it all, my, my guess is every day the father went out, prayerfully went out saying, is this the day? Is this the day? Just day after day after day so that when the day did come, he was there, he was watching, mm-hmm. and he was ready. Yeah. Well, and, you know, kind of going back to maybe last week, but the goodness of the Father draws the Son in. Mm-hmm. You know, it, uh, Jesus said it in John 6, you know, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. You know, there's this drawing that's happening um, because of the goodness of the Father. And it's, as we, you know, alluded to, that 
there's a work of God happening in a person when they come to repentance. And so that work is coming to its full fruition when that person is coming back to the Father. So mm-hmm. there's this, this goodness of God that um, is very attractive to us to the point where uh, I almost can't, I almost can't, <laughs> in my mind, you know, it's, it's something that I can't necessarily reject. It's that good. I'm drawn to it like a drug, you know, like mm-hmm. I want that more than anything else in life. And the scriptures talk about, you know, uh, having this, this thirst for God mm-hmm. more than, more than food, more than water. I, I'm hungry for your truth and for who you are. And I just want to be with you. And I think that that's where a person has to come. But we first have to realize that the Father is willing. Mm-hmm. He's willing to show that love, and He's just waiting, as you say, the, that language. He is w- waiting with this active pulling toward, uh, towards Himself. Yeah, so let's talk a minute about how, how He feels when a sinner repents, because all three of these parables talk about this. Because it's one thing for, for God, for the Father to accept his wayward son back. But the question some people might have at this point is, what's his attitude toward these people? Is he begrudging? Is he disgusted? Is he full of displeasure? And it's not just the prodigal story that answers this, it's the previous two parables that answer as well. And, And the answer, in short, is that the father responds with joy when a sinner repents. We see it in that the sheep parable first in verses five and six, it says when, when, when that shepherd found that, that one sheep who strayed away from the other 99, it, he says he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. And when he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors and he'll say, rejoice with me because I found my lost sheep. So joy is his response. And then in the parable with the woman who finds the coin, right, the lost coin, it says in verses 9 and 10, when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and she'll say, "There's here it is again, rejoice with me because I've found my lost coin. And then he says there, Jesus says there at the end of that parable, in the same way there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. So what this speaks to for me is that there is, there's, there, it's like the culture of heaven, because it doesn't just say that the Father rejoices, it says all of heaven rejoices, the angels rejoice. It's like there's a party in heaven mm-hmm. when one sinner responds. To me, that speaks to culture. And there are a lot of church cultures that completely miss this. In fact, the culture of the Jewish church at the time that Jesus tells this parable, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the culture of the Jewish church completely missed it. Yeah, their their approach was just hey, just stay away. You know, let's let's isolate ourselves as much as we possibly can from those losers. That's why they're upset. But Jesus was not isolating himself, so he was tainting himself. In one one point, uh, this this irreputable woman is there, and and the Pharisees are talking to themselves. Doesn't Jesus know who that is? Mm-hmm. Like if he was really a prophet, he'd know like how lousy she is. Uh, well, that wasn't the issue for him, and so. So their attitude is like, just, we want to have nothing to do with these people at all. So we're not even going to begrudgingly welcome them. We're going to just keep them arm's length and push them out, totally out of our circle of relationship, our sphere of, of life. Yeah, this brings up for me, you know, 
practically speaking, how how we ought to be doing ministry at church. Um, I think that even when it comes to making disciples, discipleship, mentoring, um, I know it's it's always a temptation when the people that you're trying to pour into, uh, they're sometimes slow to be committed. They're, they they fall away, they mess up, they sin, they struggle, they don't keep the appointments that you were you were going to have with them. And um, if we take the example of you know the father chasing them down, as we talk about in the in the first point, and then this this joy in heaven over you know finding or having finding the coin or a sinner repenting is. How should we then approach how we do ministry? We should be going out. We should be the proactive ones. We should be, you know, almost chasing down people as much as we can, trying to give them the chance to be able to respond to the the leading and the discipleship that we're trying to offer. That That's at least how I feel, you know, as I've been trying to train people to do mentoring and, it, and it's hard for them. Um, you know, I try to say, well... Uh, how how active are you? You know, mm. obviously there's more effort on, that's going to take on your part than it's going to take on the the mentee's part. I really believe that. It, that happened in my own life. You know, when um, I I wanted to start pursuing God, but I just wasn't there yet. You know, I was a long ways off. I guess you know, mm. and um, this guy who you know goes to our church, one of my old mentors. I love him so much, and we still are in great relationship, but, um, I was, I was lost. And even in pursuing God, I would slip and fall back and mess up. And, um, he asked me to meet with him in the mornings at like five 30 in the morning in a coffee shop. And that was a new concept to me. Hmm. You know, I wasn't very organized and, you know, not very trustworthy and faithful. And so, I met, I'd go a few times, but I'm sure there were more times um, that he was sitting there by himself at the coffee shop alone than when I was with him, when mm. I was supposed to be there. Mm. But he was so patient and long-suffering. So in your own story, Eric, how, you know, we talked last time about how you wandered from God. Your mom was just faithful, praying for you for years, praying that God would bring you back. How did, how did she respond when you did finally come back, you came when you came to your senses and you came back. Well, yeah, I would imagine. You know, I can't totally feel or understand what she was feeling inside when I would give her a call or I would want to sit down and talk um, about God and His Word. But uh, I could only imagine the joy that she had in her heart because. The way that she reacted towards me was, I'll do whatever it takes to get you wherever you need to go, mm. you know, whether it's church or whether it's to a group or a mentoring meeting, she was willing to do whatever it took because um, this is what she had wanted for me all along. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine that that's how God feels. That's, I mean, what we're seeing is God feels that way, mm. is that he wants something for us and he's long-suffering and patient over waiting for us. But finally, when we get found, we can now be in the relationship that he intended for us. Um, and that's why he comes and seeks to, to save us, because he has a, an abundant life for us that he wants mm -hmm. to give us. And, and so I know that my mom right now, she's so filled with, with joy, and she's 
she's proud of me. Both of my parents are very proud, um, just kind of amazed at what God has been able to do in my life from where I came from. So I, I remember years ago, one of the first couples that we were trying to help through an addiction, and I know you work with people in addiction, uh, so you've probably seen this before, but this is the first time we saw this. The, the husband had an addiction, and he just put his wife through hell, and he came to Jesus. I mean, it was miraculous. He came to Jesus. He cleaned up his act. It was unbelievable to see what God did, the turnaround in his life. And we were shocked when his wife, who'd been faithful the whole time, when his wife, as soon as he came to his senses, the wife went off the rails. Oh, really? She went off. She ended up having an affair. She ended up stepping out on him for a couple of years. And it was shocking to us, to Tracy and myself, we were shocked because we were, this is what you've been praying for the whole time. And I think what happened, maybe you can speak to this, or Ross, maybe you can, but I think what happened is... There's a, there's a natural part of us, and I can relate to this. There's a natural part of us that says, wait, you can't just come back. You, you can't just come back and act like nothing happened. And I think part of what it was is she wanted to punish him for everything that he had put her through. It, and she just she, she didn't have the heart of God that we... And I'm not trying to blame her. By the way, their marriage is restored now. It's a pretty cool story. But, but I think that there's something in human nature that says, no, I'm not going to be joyful. I'm going to punish you for a little while first. Yeah, and then that's back to the shock of the v- value of the listeners. They're expecting the father to, to make some conditions. Their father to the son comes back and says, you know, you got to pay, the, pay your dues. You know, there, there's got to be some kind of a recompense. And it isn't, and there's none. There's just joy and mm-hmm. celebration. You know, I think this is so powerful because a lot of people, as they're moving back toward God, maybe they've hit rock bottom like we saw last time, they're moving back to God, they understand the goodness of God like the prodigal says, oh, my, my, my father might even you know, have food for me, whatever, mm. and they're drawn back, but they're, but they're full of shame, they're full of uh, fear in terms of like, what's going to happen? Uh, will God really accept me? Will he really, will he really want me? They're not even thinking, oh, will God rejoice over me? That, that's a whole other category that's probably wow. beyond the thinking of a person who's filled with shame. They're thinking, can I even come back? Right. You know? And that reminded, reminded me, you mentioned John 6, Eric, earlier, that reminded me where, where Jesus says, uh, those the Father has given me will come to me, and I will never reject them. Mm. That's the heart of God. That's the heart of Jesus. I'm, I can think of all the reasons why God should reject me. Mm. Jesus says, no, I will never reject those who's got, whom God has given me. And in fact, it's not just that he won't reject. It's not just that his attitude is joy, like genuine joy, not disgust. It's genuinely joyful. But there's one last thing that we see in this story, and this is the real, the real shocking part of it. It's that the father is recklessly extravagant toward his children. Verses 22 to 24, it says this, But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And I love what it says here at the end of verse 24. It says, So the party began. It's not just that he puts up with you. It's not just that he allows you to come home and live with the servants. No, no. He throws a party for you. 
Yeah, let's uh, back up to that that point and you said recklessly extravagant i'm sure people's you know interest started perking up during that Mm -hmm. and this has been a kind of a controversial topic you know because of a certain song that has these lyrics in there and so if you go back to that definition of prodigal it does say you know recklessly extravagant Mm -hmm. so that's i think where you're getting the um definition from but the question is is it reckless to say that god is reckless (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's a great question you know like every word it probably depends on what you mean by the word reckless and how you how you define it yeah what's the problem ross by the way with that worship song that's out there that talks about the reckless love of god what's what what why do people have a problem with that in general terms? well it implies irresponsibility on god's part i think Mm. Uh, you know to be reckless is to like is to like be impulsive or to do things that are stupid um, or, or it's a character flaw in, in, when you think about it in most uh, ways that word is used. And that, that's not God. God is purposeful. God is he's sovereign. He's plan, he plans what he's going to do and so forth. But for my part, I'll say this, I love it. Because I know that that's, that's, that whole song is, a, is about this. It's about the sheep... It's about the sheep parable, and it's about the prodigal son parable. Mm-hmm. And I, I do love it. Here's why I like it. I'll just, Eric, maybe you have a different perspective. I like it because to me, it, it, it shocks people into paying attention to it, which is why Jesus told parables. He told a parable to get someone to think, to get someone to debate, to get, to get someone to sort of raise an eyebrow and say, wait, you can't say that about God. You can't say that God's reckless. You can't say that God's irresponsible. Well, I'm not saying he's irresponsible, but clearly this seemed to the Pharisee, to the teacher of the law, this was reckless. Like, how dare you? Blasphemy that God, that your picture of God would be like that. And I do think there's a certain sense that maybe the religious people, even today's day and age, maybe the religious people have a problem with that because maybe maybe some people have forgotten that God really is extravagant, mm. that he really is reckless. He's, mm-hmm. he's almost, it's almost wasteful how he would allow Eric, who, who has a drug past and a jail past, that you are in ministry now. I bet you some churches wouldn't, that would be a disqualifier for some churches. But in our church, that qualifies you. Well, what qualifies you is your repentant heart toward God, that you've turned toward God, which is kind of the point of the story, is all of, all of this, the joy and the gifts and everything that gets lavished on this lost son, it's all lavished on him because his heart had turned back to God. And for those kinds of people, God the Father truly is, I think, recklessly extravagant. Yeah, and I can appreciate the shock value of it. I think it's edgy, right? And and I think uh, some of us who you know are kind of more on the rule breaker side are okay with ed- edgy things. And I I agree with you. Here's something interesting that I thought I was thinking about is um, what I've noticed, what I've observed is so guys like me um, who. Uh, have struggled and 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 we rebel against authority and we don't necessarily like rules. The one um, authority that we will come under seems to be the Word of God. Like I can reject all other authorities, but if I come to the Word of God, there's there's an exceptional reverence that I want to give Him. And and what I've noticed about you know guys like you is that both of you guys is that you guys 
naturally probably it might be because of you know your your upbringing or whatever you guys naturally tend towards wanting to follow the rules but and you've been christians for a long time and so i think that with the word and and with things like this i think you're willing to to give a little bit more grace and maybe have some more liberties with certain things and that it's interesting i think that we've got to be gracious towards each each other's personalities mm-hmm. um because again um i want to be as reverent as i possibly can while still trying to navigate my personality and so that comes out in all kinds of different ways while i'm doing ministry you know how i dress the words i say from the stage and sometimes they are edgy and and grab sh- uh, shock value from people and sometimes they're direct and um, I think we're all in a different place in our, our, our spiritual walk with God. And so I think the problem with, you know, words like this, without explaining it and using shock value, I think um, people don't have the chance to have conversations like what we're having, right? And so we can all agree, like, I'm, I'm good with that being the wording because... I know that it's not talking derogatory about God. You know, it's not mm-hmm. in a negative light. It's more of like in a, you know, uh, an, an exceptional, extravagant attribute of God that he's willing to go beyond the bounds of what man think that God should do. Yeah, the Bible background commentary gives sheds a little light on, on exactly what the Father's doing here. It says that the best robe in the house would belong to the Father himself, so he actually gives his son his own robe. The ring would probably be a, f- a family signet ring, and so it would symbolize reinstatement to sonship in a well-to-do house. And then slaves or impoverished workers often didn't wear sandals, though, as here they carried and tied a master's sandals. So the father is saying, no, I won't receive you back as a servant. I'll receive you only as a son, right? Which is, again, just the final uh, sort of nail in the coffin when it comes to the Pharisees who were trying to, who were being shockingly challenged with their picture of God. God was not who they thought he was. Right. And really the final nail comes next time when he speaks essentially to them about them, their own attitude. Yeah, but that's yeah. true. But I think what's really telling here, I think this is at the heart of the whole parable. <clears throat> My son, uh, he says, this son of mine was dead and is now returned to life. In other words, Different, the, the different audiences here are framing the issue in different ways. The Pharisees are framing the issue in terms of righteous or unrighteous, mm. worthy or unworthy. The Father's framing the issue in a completely different sense. It's not about whether he screwed up or not. It's not about whether you know, he offended the family or whatever. He was dead. Now he's alive. How do you not celebrate that? Mm. You know, if you frame it in, in that sense, how would you possibly go, oh, no, that's wrong. You know, so I think he's trying to, trying to encourage the Pharisees, the religious people, to frame it in a completely different sense. Not like who's worthy and who isn't worthy, but like, wow, death and life is ultimate. It's huge. Do you think he's talking about like spiritual death, like what we believe, you know, kind of the doctrine of that men are born dead in their trespasses and sin? I mean, I think that can be inferred into it, but... I'm really just asking, do you think that that um, applies here, or is it maybe even saying he was basically as good as dead f- 
physically being away from the family. Yeah, I think the bigger context of the whole New Testament, we could see maybe a implication of spiritual death and life. But I think he, he had no idea where his son was. Mm-hmm. He went to a far country. He had no idea if his son was dead or alive. He had, he had no contact, mm-hmm. no communication. He was essentially dead. He's as good as dead, like you said. Mm-hmm. In terms of his experience, who knows? I mean, if you have, if you have, uh, you know, sometimes you hear the stories about kids who are kidnapped at young age, mm-hmm. or or someone who's disappeared and nobody knows where they went, and you don't know. You know, the parents would like to have closure. Yeah. They don't get closure, so so they're as good as dead. Yeah, I think that's the case. And so you see the heart value here, as well as the, you know. So uh, my point is, it's just a totally different framework than the religious people are used to. Think well, yeah, about. and that's good because it does remind me of how Jesus often. Uh, interacted with the Pharisees and teachers of the law. You, you know, he a guy comes to him on the Sabbath to be healed. He's got a shriveled hand, and I, I think that's the one where Jesus looks at the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and says, "What do you think? Do you think I should heal him today?" Because the framework that a that a rule the rule keeper tends to have, and we'll talk about this more next week. But a framework that a rule keeper tends to have is rules come first. Everything right. is framed under the rules. Whereas what Jesus is trying to get across is the the rules are not ultimate. The the this is what he says. He says the 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 we, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, right? The rules were made for man, not the other way around. That in other words, it's it's about the the framing of relationship and people matter to God more than rules. People matter to God, and this is what he's trying to get across. But it's so hard to get to break the framework you grew up with. It's so hard to to break the way that you are you, you've just been taught to think about it. I know, as you say that, I'm going like, wait, wait, you you better talk some more because you're saying now the rules don't count. That God's <laughs> rules don't matter, right? right? No, you're not saying that, but right. that's my heart, my emotive reaction, right? Yeah, exactly. So I, I think it'd be it'd be good to finish. To me, I can't I can't read the story of the prodigal son without reading Psalm 103 verses 8 through 13. I think it'd be good for us to finish with this. It says this. Again, these, this was written, what, about 800 years before Christ even came, before this story of the prodigal son. And it says this, this a Psalm of David. It says, The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us nor remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love toward those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. And, you know, this is the most famous passage in the Old Testament when it comes to describing the nature of God. But I think a lot of people who are far from God don't even really recognize that this is the ultimate description of the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's the same God, even though we see a lot of wrath in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, God's heart is for his people, and his heart is for the, for the people who would come to him. This is the extravagant, wasteful, reckless love of God. And if you're out there today listening to this and, and you say, I want to know this God, I want a relationship with this God, I just encourage you to, to go to somebody, maybe somebody who shared this podcast with you, and say, help me to understand 
how to get in touch with the love of, of the God of the Bible. And again, you can find these resources for this whole series at pursuegod.org forward slash prodigal. And I hope you'll join us in our next episode because next time we're going to take a look at what Jesus has to say to the elder son, which is the Pharisee who's listening to this whole story. We'll see you next time.